Good morning, brethren. It's a joy to be able to bring the word of the Lord to you this morning. If you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 19 this morning. This is Paul's prayer for strength. So as I was studying through this prayer, I was thinking back to when Chris preached through this prayer to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 a couple years ago. It was for Vision Sunday, turned into Vision January and February and March and became Vision Quarter, uh, which, which was great because uh, there was so much to be found in that prayer. <clears throat> but that changed the way I pray. It changed how I pray for, for you all. It changed the, the way that I pray for all the saints, for myself. <clears throat> and I just saw the character of God more clearly and how he wants us to pray and what sort of things we should be asking for and what we should be expecting from the Lord when we pray and what the Lord wants for us and his willingness to give these things to us and how he wants us to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And um, I, just, I saw that my praying was much too light. I needed to expand my view of who God is and uh, to, to know that we come before this God who strengthens us according to his glorious might and who wants us to bear fruit in every good work. So just these grand things that we're to be praying for. Uh, so just, it changed the way that I pray, the way that I think about the Lord. Uh, so with that said, let's pray that the Lord open our eyes and, and work in us as he has before um, and as he desires to. So Father, we just come to you this morning. You are the God of heaven and earth. You have made all things. You are sustaining all things. And, and we come to be fed from your word. Lord, I pray that the hearts of the saints would be encouraged this morning. I pray that if there are any here who are sorrowful or discouraged or on the point of despair, you would just strengthen their hearts and um, any who are in need of reproof, um, correction, that you would do that for them. And, and uh, any here who don't know you or any of our children here, any others who don't know you, that you would save sinners this morning, Lord. And we, we ask because you said that we, we do not have if we do not ask. And so we pray that you would do mighty things among us this morning. Help me to clearly proclaim your word. In Christ's name, amen. So let's read Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we're right in the middle of Paul's letter here in our passage today. And he, he begins this prayer with the words, for this reason. So he's basically saying, in light of what I've just said, I pray for these things. So let's do a little backtracking just to see how we got here, to see what moves Paul to pray in this way. So Paul begins the letter to the saints in Ephesus by setting forth what the Father has done, that he's chosen us in Christ. He's predestined us for adoption through Christ. He's granted us an inheritance in Christ, and he sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit in Christ. So this language of in Christ, which leads to his first prayer in the letter. He gave thanks for the faith and the love of the saints, and he prayed that the Father of glory give them knowledge of three things. Knowledge of the hope they've been called to, the knowledge of God's inheritance in them, and then the knowledge of God's power toward them. So that's chapter one. Chapter 2, we're reminded of what we were. We were dead in trespasses and sins, enslaved to the passions of our bodies, children of wrath, along with the rest of mankind. And while we were in that condition, God had mercy on us, and he made us alive together with Christ because of this great love with which he loved us. Salvation is all of grace. It is the gift of God. And he will continue to display the riches of his kindness toward us through all of eternity. 
That's the first half of chapter 2. In the second half, Paul wants us to continue remembering the past, the time before we had any hope, when we were without God, separated from Christ, no fellowship, but now we have peace with God. And, and not only peace, it's not just that we're no longer enemies, but we now have access to the Father. We're no longer strangers to God's covenant promises as Gentiles. We are fellow citizens with the saints, partakers of God's precious promises. So how can this be? And Paul tells us this is by the blood of the cross. Through the death of Christ, he brought unity to Jew and Gentile. Listen to this language of oneness that he uses. He says, For he himself is our peace, and he has made us both one, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So this oneness that has been brought about through the death of Christ. So at one time we were enemies, cut off from God, but now through Christ we have peace with God and unity with all of those who have believed. That's chapter 2. Now we come to chapter 3. Paul sort of takes a detour from where he was going to, to get personal and, and talk about himself, not so that he can boast about himself, but to make known this mission that God has given him, how he's been charged by God to take what's been given him and to proclaim it to the nations. Paul says he's in prison for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. So he was entrusted by God and empowered by God to proclaim a mystery. A mystery is something that had been hidden up until that time. So he's been given the mystery of the gospel, what no generation had yet seen, what the kings of old wished to know, what the prophets searched for and inquired carefully about, even what angels longed to look into. God made this known to Paul, along with the other apostles and the prophets at that time. And the one that all the prophets spoke of and all the scriptures pointed to had come, the Messiah had come, proclaiming that the kingdom of God was here and that it was now the year of the Lord's favor. It was the year of liberty for the captives, comfort for those mourning, good news for the poor. So this time that all generations had been waiting for, this time was now fulfilled. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. And we think of all those instances that Steve brought out for us in the Gospel of Matthew. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So God had finally brought into the world the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. God the Son took on a body, born of a virgin, and came to seek and to save the lost. Emmanuel, God with us. He healed the sick. He touched and cleansed lepers. He cast out demons. He taught as one who had authority, proclaimed that he was the fulfillment of the scriptures, and he commanded the wind and the waves. He walked on water. He revealed the brightness of his glory to his closest disciples. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. He loved his enemies. He wept over their hardness of heart. And he declared others' sins to be forgiven. There was no one like this man. There's never anyone like this man, and there never will be. He is the unique, beloved Son of God. But his own people did not receive him. They rejected him as Messiah and crucified him. Christ came. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He was betrayed, arrested, put to death, just as the Father had predestined. But death couldn't hold him. He hadn't committed any sin. He always did what was pleasing to the Father. And so he rose from the grave in power, defeating death and the one who has the power of death, Satan himself. And he ascended to sit at his Father's right hand, installed as king forever. So where are we now? Now is the gospel age. Now is the time to go and proclaim all of these types under the Old Covenant have found their fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus. And all these shadows 
under the old covenant. They've been overshadowed by the substance. Satan has been bound so that he might no longer deceive the nations. And the Spirit has been poured out on men, women, and children far and wide, everyone who has believed upon the Lord Jesus. The Spirit who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And right at the beginning of this gospel age, the Apostle Paul here was given these truths. The mystery of Christ was revealed to Paul. Why? So that he might preach to the Gentiles, to the nations, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He was given this knowledge so that he might make it known. This message that the promises of God are not just for the physical descendants of Abraham. These promises are in Christ, and anyone can share in these promises through the gospel. Whoever turns to Christ in faith becomes a partaker in the promise of eternal life. Fellowship with the triune God forever and ever. And now, we're kind of coming to the end of that first section in chapter 3 here. Paul talks about how this is all, this is by the church, this is by the redeemed people of God that this mystery of God is put on display. And it's put on display not, not only for the world to see, but for all in heaven, he says. These rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this, is, this is a cosmic plan. This is an eternal purpose of God in Christ. This is the plan of the ages. All of redemptive history was building up to the coming of Christ. The anticipation of this, this one to come. So now we're in the last days in which creation itself is, is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. There's, there's no greater purpose taking place. There's no grander plan outside of this. It might seem like there's a lot of significant things going on all around us. Governments rising and falling, wars, conflicts, natural disasters, good things, technology, new things coming out, new cars, new phones, gadgets, new toys, the state of the economy, new movies and shows coming out, whatever kind of entertainment we look forward to, your next vacation, earthly possessions, the cares of your life, your day-to-day -day responsibilities, down to the, the, the smallest of details, they can all seem so pressing and important and urgent. But Jesus says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with the cares of this life. These issues aren't unimportant, but God reconciling the world to himself through Christ so that all of his people are brought to himself, so that this marriage supper of the Lamb can one day take place, and every seat at that table is going to be filled. Not one seat will be empty. Not one of the redeemed people of God will be missing. I mean, this, there's no comparison here. If your life on earth is not about making it to that day when you will see the Lord, if it's not about knowing and having fellowship with the eternal God, then you're missing it all. Most people, even those who don't know the Lord, have a sense that life is about relationship. People might pursue money, power, but when someone loses everything, they usually see the vanity of what they have been pursuing, the vanity of things and possessions and wealth. God's put in, in everyone this innate desire for relationship, for friendship, this desire to love, to be loved. Can you imagine how, how utterly void and purposeless life would be if you were just here all alone? No one else to relate to, no one to interact with, no one to talk with. God's put this desire for relationship in us all because we're all made in his image, and that's what God's after. God's after relationship with us, and that's, that's what this desire for relationship is meant to be fulfilled in, is relationship with him. He wants you to know him as father, as, as your dearest and most trustworthy friend. He wants you to know his son as, as the bridegroom, as your bridegroom to one day be your husband. And this leads to verse 13 of chapter 3, right before Paul begins to pray here. Verse 13, Paul asks the saints, 
not to lose heart because of his imprisonment. So they hear of his suffering, but he wants them to know that it is for them. It's bringing about their glory. And now Paul is moved to pray. So what is it that's bringing Paul to his knees? What, what is he so desperate for? So he's in prison, and he's suffering. And he's not hiding that. He says very plainly he's suffering in, in such a way that it might cause the saints to lose heart when they hear of this suffering. But he doesn't pray here concerning the removal of his suffering. and He, he doesn't ask them to pray for the removal of his suffering. Paul prays for the strength of the saints. This is his primary concern. So even before we get into the content of his prayer here, just consider the circumstances under which he prayed these things. As he was languishing, suffering in prison, here's Paul praying for their strength and that they might not lose heart over his suffering for their glory. So this is the mind of Christ. This is counting others more significant than yourself. May we learn to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ here. So he says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For the reason that God, by his sovereign grace, is saving a people for himself and uniting them all to be one body in Christ— and is bringing us all into maturity so that we might all be conformed into the image of Christ so that together we might be this dwelling place for God. This is about fellowship. This is God in us, us in him. So this frames the whole prayer. This is the very reason that Paul is brought to his knees here in light of the plan of God to redeem his people through the death of his son, to make them alive together with his resurrected son, in one body, and to dwell with them forever. This is the plan and the will of God, and now Paul prays that God bring this to pass in his brothers and sisters. So in light of, of all these wondrous realities that are ours in Christ, that we lack no spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul still bows his knees before the Father, Looking back to that first prayer in the letter, he was moved to give thanks for the work of God immediately after he, he spoke of these blessings that we have in Christ. But now he prays that God might give strength. We're still in need, brethren. Well, aren't we blessed with every spiritual blessing already? Aren't we sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance that we have in him? Haven't we already been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places? I mean, that's what, what Paul just taught. We have been. But we need to press on. Thanksgiving is a proper response when we consider all that God's done for us in Christ, and especially when we consider our, our unworthiness. Thanksgiving is integral, and if, if you don't find that you're giving thanks to God from the heart, you haven't understood the grace of God in truth. But it must not stop at Thanksgiving. We're still on this battlefield. We're, we still have the flaming darts of the evil one being aimed right at us. God gives assurance and comfort to us, not so that we might rest from our labors now and just relax. He gives assurance that we will one day very soon rest from our labors, which encourages us now to seek him, to seek the Lord as, as we see our present need, what we need right now. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He bows his knees before the Father. You think this is saying something about the earnestness with which Paul is praying? What he's about to ask the Father is, is not something in the back of his mind. It's not just something all of a sudden he remembered that he hasn't prayed for the Ephesians in a while, so he just lifts up this generic prayer to the Lord for them just so he can kind of appease his conscience. He kneels to the ground in the same way that the Lord Jesus knelt before his Father at Gethsemane. 
and he was agonizing in prayer over the cup of his father's wrath that he would soon drink, to the point of where he was sweating great drops of blood, but submitting to the will of his father. In the same way that Stephen did as he was being stoned, and after he had gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, he was cast out of the city and stoned, And it says, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And in the same way that Paul himself had knelt before these very elders, this this congregation in Ephesus, he knelt before the elders when they were giving this final farewell to each other. Acts 20, verses 36 to 38, it says, Paul knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. These are just some examples that Scripture gives us of of those kneeling in prayer. So Paul comes before the Father kneeling with deep earnestness with, with what he's about to pray for. And he does this before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So why does Paul add this detail? We haven't even gotten to the content of his prayer yet, but before he asks, he's making known who this is that he's coming before. This is the Father who gives life to all. He says later in chapter 4, verse 6, that there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, This is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So this might seem a bit strange at first. Every family in heaven. Families in heaven. So let's look back at chapter 1, verse 21. It says, God has seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And he did this, back in verse 19, it says, according to the working of his great might. All rule and authority and power and dominion in heaven. So every, every class of angels, good, evil, every angel was created by God. They all derive their existence from God the Father, the creator of all. And, and they're all subject to this one who is called God Almighty. So God names every family in heaven and on earth. So this, this naming, this act of naming another denotes power. It gives a sense of dominion. Look at Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. It says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. Naming has to do with power. So the God who rules heaven and earth, the sovereign creator of all things, is is the God that Paul appeals to here. Now, what does Paul pray for? Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul prays that the Father strengthen his brothers and sisters with power. In his first prayer in the letter, he prayed that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward them. Here he prays that God give them his power. So we'll, we'll talk more about this being strengthened with power in just a minute. But first notice how Paul asks that God grant this request. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. God is not limited in how he gives. His supply out of which he gives is not exhaustible. You don't begin to deplete his stockpile of power and strength when you ask and then he gives. It's according to the inexhaustible riches of his glory. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul had prayed that they know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in them, in the saints. So if if the glory of God is bound up in us, in the saints, as his inheritance, will he not, in accordance with the riches of his glory, 
give lavishly to those who ask, to us, the saints. His glory, the glory of God, far surpasses the glory of every other being. The glory of God is his, his brightness, um, the splendor of his character. John says in, in 1 John 1, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The glory of God is shown forth out of the absolute perfections of his character. So again, Paul prays that God grant according to the riches of his glory, a, a glory unlike anything else in all creation. Only God can give in this manner. Only he can give so lavishly and generously. Paul used this exact phrase in a couple other places. Philippians 4.19 he says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God will give to you and meet all your needs according to these same riches in glory. And then Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory? for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So God desires to make known his power and the riches of his glory toward us, toward these vessels of mercy. So let's, let's go back to verse 16. Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, the infinitely abundant riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being strengthened with power through his spirit. Paul's not praying that we would be strengthened by looking in ourselves and finding that deep down we're strong. Somehow we have it in us. We just, we got to look deeper. We just need to find our inner strength, our inner power. That's not at all what Paul's saying. This is power that comes from outside of us. This is God himself that gives this power. And the very spirit whom we have been sealed with, who dwells in us forever, is the one by whom God gives and, and dispenses this power. This is not some impersonal transaction. God just looking down and, and sending some, some waves of power towards us. God the Spirit, who lives in us and, and even intercedes for us according to the will of God, it is he himself that strengthens us. Strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And this is where the strengthening takes place. The inner being, or, or literally the inner man. This is the same language used in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. It says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer man is wasting away. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. We have something that's not wasting away. If we have something, if we have an inner man that's, that's being renewed day by day, this is clearly a work of God. This is something supernatural. What, what in all creation under heaven is not subject to the curse, is not part of this whole process of death and decay? If, if there's something that's not under that, something that's being renewed, this is clear the, clearly the work of God. Our inner man, transformed by the work of God, set free from, from our old union to Adam, and now made to be in union with Christ. Strengthened with power in your inner man. So when you, when you come across the word strength in the scriptures, you'll often see that this has to do with a strength of heart, a strength of soul. Here's just a few examples here. Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 84, 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Psalm 138, 3. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. Here's one from the Proverbs. Proverbs eight fourteen. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. So here, it's paralleled with wisdom and insight. It's, it's in the realm of the heart. 
So this is the sort of strength that Paul is after, the sort of strength that, that the Lord wants to give, because this is our greatest weakness. This is, this is our greatest need, is to be strengthened in heart. We need supernatural power. But not all desire for power is good. We see the abuse of power all around us. I mean, certainly in the world, business, politics, relationships, but, but even in the church, some desire power and authority to gain influence and prominence. Remember Simon, the magician. He had amazed the whole city of Samaria with this magic that he was practicing. and They were so amazed that they called him. They said, this man is the power of God who is called great. And then Philip came and he preached the good news of Jesus and the people believed. And they were going after Philip as he was teaching them. And, and then Peter and John came to lay hands on these new disciples so that they, they might receive the Holy Spirit. And then Simon saw what happened, that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He saw that, and he wanted that. He offered money so that he could have that power. He wanted to be able to give the Spirit in that same way. Peter strongly rebuked him because his heart was not right before God. This is, this is a desire for power that's evil and wicked because he just wanted it for self-gain. He wanted to be seen like he had before as the power of God. So we've got that sort of desire for power. We've got false teachers that will talk about the power of God in an unbiblical way. They'll promote the power of God to escape suffering and, and quote-unquote, achieve your dreams. But when Paul speaks of being strengthened with power, he means something altogether different. Listen to a couple other places where he speaks of power. Philippians 3.10, what we just read this morning. Paul's ultimate aim is that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So his desire to know the resurrection power of Christ is inseparable from this desire to share in the sufferings of Christ. The power of the cross, like we sang about. And in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul boasts in his weaknesses, his insults, and his hardships, and persecutions, and calamities. Why? Why did he boast of those things? So that the power of Christ might rest upon him. So the power of God that comes through his Spirit to strengthen our inner man has everything to do with glorifying God in our suffering. Trusting God, praising him, abounding in thanksgiving, in the midst of our hardships. Isn't that how Paul prayed for the Colossians? Colossians 1.11 is praying, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Let's keep going here. Paul continues, Strengthen with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So, the translation that I was reading from the ESV, and maybe your translation too if you have a different one, the NAS, the NIV, I think they all translate, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, but this isn't the result of the Spirit strengthening our inner man. This is, this is simply a further explanation of it. It's, this is how the Spirit strengthens um, so I would prefer that Christ may dwell in your hearts and take out the so. But verse 16 and verse 17, they're not two separate things. They're, they're the same thing described two different ways. Christ dwelling in the heart is the work of the Spirit. And heart here is paralleled with the inner man. And let's keep in mind here, Paul's praying for the saints. So he's not speaking of this initial coming of the Spirit, upon the saints at conversion. These believers had already received the Spirit. They'd been sealed with the Spirit. But Paul prays that Christ may dwell in them and continue to make his home in their hearts. He commanded them later in the letter to be filled with the Spirit. Didn't they already have the Spirit? Yes, but he wants them more and more to be filled with him. 
This word for dwell here is, is a very strong word that brings this idea of permanence. Not that he may visit, sojourn in our hearts, or just have a short stay. This is to dwell, to reside, to take up residence, to live here. A couple other places that Paul uses this word, translated dwell. Colossians 2.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is speaking of Christ. So the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. This is hardly temporary. Ephesians 2.22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the same root word here. Paul says that they were being built together. It wasn't something that had already taken place and was finished. Christ dwells in our hearts as he continues to make it more and more his home. Notice also, we've got all three persons of the Trinity here. Paul prays to the Father that the believers might be strengthened with power through his Spirit, that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. In John 14, Jesus had just told his disciples that the Father would send the Spirit to be with them forever and dwell with them and be in them. And then he says in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is the promise that's fulfilled in, in all of us, everyone who's a Christian. The dwelling place of God is with man. The Spirit dwells with you. Christ himself dwells in your heart. Even the Father is included here in this last verse I just read in John 14, 23, when Jesus says that we will come to him and make our home with him. So this is that fellowship, that relationship, the intimacy that God desires with us to make his home with us and to be with us forever. And this indwelling of Christ in the heart, Paul says, is through faith. Not just that one-time act when we were converted, but it's this continual act of faith in the life of the Christian. By grace, through faith, we have been saved, and we must continue in faith so that we endure to the end and so that we might be saved. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So Christ lives in us, and we live by faith in him. So this is just another way of saying that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Christ lives in us. He dwells in us as we live through faith in him. Paul goes on. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. These two words here, rooted and grounded, these are, these are pictures that he's giving here. One of a tree, rooted, that's driven its roots deep into the soil, something strong and immovable. And this other, grounded, is giving this picture of a building with a foundation that is connected with the earth so that it's not easily shaken. So we have these roots and this foundation in love. It's the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is the cause for rejoicing and suffering. That's Romans 5. And the love of God in Christ is what clings to us through tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and, and nakedness, danger and sword. That, that whole list there in Romans 8. No one and nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we have a sure foundation in the love of God. Now, having this foundation of love, he says, being rooted and grounded in love, Paul again prays for strength, this time that, verse 18, they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul longs for them to know the fullness of God's love for them in Christ. It's not enough that they know of God's love, and they're even rooted in its soil. There's more to be had. 
an earnest prayer is made here so that God would strengthen them so that they might excel all the more. Here's another sort of strange phrase. At least it hit me sort of strange at first. Strength to comprehend. Why would Paul pray for strength in order to comprehend? What what does strength have to do with comprehending? Well, the word for comprehend can also have a sense of possessing or laying hold of something with the mind. So it's something that this belongs to us, but we need strength to comprehend all that is ours. The fullness of the love of Christ is towards us. All that God is in Christ, the riches of his infinite love, is ours, but we need to lay hold of that. So again, we're just, we're reminded here of our need. We can't, we can't understand spiritual things without God supernaturally enabling us to do so. We need our hearts strengthened to grasp such wonderful knowledge. Listen to Psalm 139, verse 6. David writes, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God's knowledge of David, the way in which he intimately knows him to the depths of his heart, is so wonderful that David seems like he's just unable to grasp it all. He seems to be in need of God's strengthening just to attain this knowledge. Let's, let's look a little more closely at what Paul's asking here. He prays that the believers may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and... Wait. The breadth and length and height and depth of what? Well, he doesn't say. He just kind of leaves it at that. There's, there's no object here. And then he continues. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So... Similar to verses 16 and 17, and how those two verses, they weren't two separate things, but rather they were one and the same, just described in different ways. These verses here are, I think, the same thing. At least they're functioning in the same way, in the same manner. So the object of the breadth and length and height and depth is the love of Christ. We need strength to comprehend the limitless dimensions of this love. This is a love that surpasses knowledge. And just, just think, if, if you have any grasp of this infinite, exceedingly vast love of Christ, brethren, it's, it's from the Spirit. It's from God himself. This isn't your own doing. What do you have that you have not received? So the language with all these dimensions That sort of gives us a picture of the vastness of the love of Christ. So vast, it cannot be contained. It goes in every direction, in infinite amounts. But this fact that it surpasses knowledge, this emphasizes something different. This is emphasizing just its utter beyondness. It it goes beyond what can be comprehended. It's so great and so vast that it can't be fully known. Whatever understanding you have right now of the love of Christ, it's incomplete. It's lacking. It should be more than it was last year, and hopefully by this time next year, it will be even more. We grow in this knowledge. But you will never plumb the depths of the love of Christ. Yet the will of God is that we have strength to comprehend its vastness and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So this description is not to discourage us. It's not to discourage us so that we can't know it. Rather, it's to encourage us that God would have us to pray in this way so that we might know. Why would God have Paul pray in this way and write it down for our sake if he didn't intend to answer such prayers? Remember who we approach in prayer, brethren. This is the Father who has power and dominion over all creation, heaven and on earth, and who graciously gives in accordance with the riches of his glory. Before we move on to this last phrase, though, I don't want you to miss this. this look at what prefaces what we need strength for to comprehend. Look at these four little words here 
It says, with all the saints. Paul prays that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So if you're to know this immeasurable love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, it's going to take place primarily in the context of the saints, in the context of the local church. And since it's far more than just an intellectual grasp of a doctrine, the doctrine of the love of Christ, the knowledge of this love will be manifested, it will be made known in body life. As we live among the people of God and witness this building up of the body of Christ, as we sit under the preaching of the word together, as we come together and devote ourselves to prayer, as we come together for accountability and confess our sins to one another, as we sing together, as we give thanks to him, as we rejoice and weep together, this is all giving us a canvas with which the love of Christ can be painted on. If we're not among the saints, much of this love of Christ, much even of the will of God and all of Scripture might be hidden from you. It's just all sort of floating up here in this intellectual cloud. But here, we're down on the ground and, and we're, we're seeing it take place. I like the way that John stopped puts it. He says, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. On the other hand, the love of Christ is absolutely doctrinal. It's communicated to us through the scriptures, and apart from the word of God and the spirit of God working through the word, there's not going to be any comprehension of this love. You must be longing for and taking in the pure spiritual milk of the words so that by it you might grow up into salvation. Thinking upon the love of Christ, meditating upon his word, these are absolutely vital. And without these, there will be very little, if any, progress in our understanding of the love of Christ. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which is in parallel to being filled with the Spirit when you compare Colossians and Ephesians. The filling of the Spirit, this being strengthened in the inner man, this takes place in our dwelling on the Word of Christ. But the love of Christ is meant to go beyond the mind. It's to shape the heart. It's to be experienced here. This is, this is speaking of a subjective experience that goes beyond just doctrinal knowledge. It's to be felt it, it has to be, because it surpasses knowledge. But this is not an individual pursuit, which, that's encouraging. The love of Christ is meant to be comprehended and known together. This would, this would be a daunting task if this was just, you know, this is just an individual thing you have to do on your own. And it's for all the saints we're all meant to know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. This is not just love that's to be grasped by the apostles, by the missionaries out there, by the most mature saints among us. This is strength to comprehend the love of Christ with all the saints. Now, let's answer the question, for what purpose? Why is Paul praying these things? So pa Paul finally finishes this long sentence, this is all one long sentence, with the ultimate purpose of all that he's just prayed for, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays for believers to have strength, to know the infinite love of Christ, so that ultimately we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Just a few verses later in the next chapter, in chapter 4, Paul tells us that the purpose of the work of ministry is for all the saints to reach this fullness. Just says it in a little bit different language. Ephesians 4.13, the work of ministry is for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The knowledge of Christ 
is to mature us to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And there's also a great parallel in Colossians that helps us understand what is this fullness of God. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So in Christ is the very fullness of God. We're being filled with him through the Spirit. We're being made like the Son of God. And this is the ultimate aim of our calling. This is why we were chosen before the foundation of the world, so that we might be holy and blameless before him, made into his image. God wants us to know the love of Christ so that we become like him. Beholding is becoming. Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith as we see him with the eyes of faith. We look to him and, and we're transformed into his image and our inner man is renewed. And this will necessarily bring about unity in the body of Christ and love for one another. You can't at the same time be maturing in knowing the love of Christ and yet remain unconcerned with your brothers and sisters' grasp of the love of Christ. When we're strengthened to comprehend the love of Christ, we will be filled with his fullness. We will be concerned with all the saints, with all of our brothers and sisters, and we will be conformed into his image. This is the work of our Father who will strengthen us with power according to the riches of his glory, so that together with all the saints, we might know the love of Christ and be filled with all his fullness. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Your word is what strengthens us in time of need. Your word comes to us and, and your spirit works through us as we hear and read your word and as we're together in fellowship with the saints. And Lord, I pray that that would be taking place today and, and from now on, Lord, as we gather together, Lord, that we be taking place, we be taking part in fellowship in which we would all be growing to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Lord, we want this. We ask for this power at New Covenant. Lord, this is not something that's just individual for us to be doing on our own. We want to be doing this together as your body, and we want to be as concerned, having a genuine concern for all of our brothers and sisters and how they are understanding the love of Christ, that we would all be made into the image of Christ. We pray for this great purpose that you would do this, Lord. We know that this is your will. We know that as we ask in accordance with your will, that you will answer. We give thanks in Christ's name.